previous co-hosts Aisha H and we have a new co-host on today uh welcome Amina to the podcast it's good to have you on the team uh, and how are you Amina uh assalamu alaikum guys I'm very well thank you hope you're all doing great inshallah very excited to be here on the front lines finally alhamdulillah <laughs> alhamdulillah same here alhamdulillah yeah we're happy to have you hope you don't regret yeah. it <laughs> No, not in the slightest. No, no. Yeah, and also... Yeah, definitely it's not. especially... This is like the perfect debut episode uh, to have you on for, alhamdulillah, because today we're talking about um, the importance of studying history in general and also Islamic history in particular. Um, and I feel like this is, you know, uh, kind of like a, you know, a platitude that we hear a lot, that it's very important to know history and that history repeats itself. And those who, you know, study the past uh, influence the future or whatever. Um, but we really want to take... Um, kind of like dive deeper into like what that looks like for Muslims to be um, to really know history and like how to approach that study of history in a way that um, you know doesn't fall into like um, romanticization or you know like uh, other you know on, on the opposite end of the spectrum there's also like just as inaccurate theories of like decline um, and you know things that make us despair as Muslims when we look into our past um, but yeah so just to like dive into the topic I want to ask you guys do you think that we as Muslims know our history? Uh, so, you know, like with regards to like Western history and empires, we see it as like a very dynamic thing. You know, we learn the growth and the decline. And, you know, we know everything that happens in the middle, all the actors involved. And, you know, we even know why they made the decisions that they did. Um, and, you know, why certain countries speak French, for example. But for some reason, when it comes to our own Islamic history, this is, we, we most definitely don't know this. And, you know, we know like stories of the prophets and the seerah, and then there's like a massive blur in the middle. And, you know, lots of things are happening during this blur, but we never really learned what. And, you know, we know that Islam started off in like a very small land in um, Arabia and it kind of it managed to spread across, like, you know, the countries and continents. And, you know, all of us here are from different places around the world. You know, subhanAllah, you know, all the, a lot of diversity, all of our own problems and politics as well. But subhanAllah, we all have been blessed with the message of Islam. Uh, but, you know, like we don't actually know why how and how it's such a different journey for each of us. And subhanAllah, it's the one thing that does unite us all as well. So, and we tend, we, we have like reduced our history to like, you know, this thing happened at this time and this person was involved. And, you know, now we're just where we are right now. So and sometimes you see like Muslims in like places where, you know, you don't really see Muslims. And you're like, you know, like, how did you get there? Like, what is your origin story? And it's not that we don't have the knowledge of these things because it's not some sort of like lost Islamic history. Like there are various like travelers, scholars, historians who have documented our history. You know, like we have... Um, Ibn Khaldun and Ibn Fadlan and you know so at this point it is kind of like a like a willful ignorance um, because you know I mean, I mean in short we don't know our history mm. either. <laughs> yeah yeah no I agree I think that alhamdulillah like there is some awareness and it's growing but it's definitely not to the extent that you know we really understand how even Muslims in different parts of the world came to be and you know I speak for myself kind of first and foremost in this regard um, I recently found out that in Malaysia, for example, before they anglicized their, their language, they had a similar language to Ottoman Turkish that was written in the Persian script, Jawi, which, you know, obviously has a lot of words that is similar to Arabic and Persian and those kind of Islamic cultures as well. And 
this is something that really, if I'd ever sat and thought deeply about how come Malaysia has a, a Latin script, I would probably have been able to come to the conclusion that, oh yes, there must have been something previous to that. And what was that? It must have been influenced by Islam somewhat. But I don't know, there's just kind of not much, because it's not spoken about, we kind of take the status quo sometimes for granted in that respect. A lot of the history that we study as Islamic history is, as you said, the life of Muhammad and obviously the Khulafa Rashidun come after that. But there's a gap in between that and kind of where we are today. Um, I think oftentimes when we do talk about history as well, it's often centered on particular figures. And that's not a bad thing because obviously there are some great individuals in our history and no, through individuals, it's a great way to learn about that period in question. Obviously, like I said, like the Khulafa we have, um, the Khulafa Rashidun, um, later on we have Salah al-Din. Even now, you know, people are very interested in the lives of various Ottoman sultans and things like that, which is definitely great. But I think that it would be really useful as well if, if, if we, have, we as a community and we as our ummah could learn about historical periods. The same way when we're in school, we learn about the historical period of, in the UK, Henry VIII or the Cold War or, or, or things like that, where we kind of really have an understanding of the events and the narratives that shaped that time and, those, and, and the people that came afterwards. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, in addition to just studying history itself, my concern is that um, we don't also, even the there, there. I feel like it's not, you know, unheard of to find people who are interested in um, learning about Islamic history and, you know, diving deep into certain historical events. And it also becomes kind of like a, um, it's a social media phenomenon too, right? Like these, um, like short snappy videos that, you know, highlight like some cool person in history or this like obscure event um, or like Twitter threads and things like this that just give you like um, bite-sized pieces of history. Um, but my concern is that we don't then know how to actually approach um presentation of historical facts and we don't know how to judge it and its accuracy um and this is something that i appreciated when i took like like a, just a few history classes in university but it was that like the first lecture was always you know in every single class it was always like the first lecture is about historiography and like how do we define historiography before we even actually get into the history itself um historiography being like um the literal linguistic definition just being how history is written and in that is implied that history can be written in multiple different ways so one person may write it with a particular lens they might leave out certain facts they may decide that some things are important to include um they may you know uh, include things that are completely false and that this is not unheard of um but that understanding that before we just you know decide that yeah we're history buffs and like oh we've heard this cool story about um islam and muslim so we want to spread it but rather do we actually know how to, you know, criticize historical accounts? Um, and this was also like, you, you know, like the, this phenomenon of people, um, you know, kind of uncritically spreading, uh, like, you know, really positive examples of like, you know, Islamic history. It's, you know, um, it comes from a good place often. And it's not, you know, people willfully and intentionally spreading something that's false. Um, but it's just not going, it, it, I don't think it's an automatic thing for us that when we see something like that posted, with even in like many articles that are on like popular news sites, um, we don't check out the sources and we don't think like, are there different narratives about this? But uh, it's just, you know, yeah, it's a cool story, I'll share it. Um, and yeah, like that. that's, you know, um, just like an additional layer that we need to address, but... Yeah, so um, people, like, obviously people do share things innocently. Like, I used to do it quite often. You know, that's where you get, like, the whole thing about, you know, Muslims invented this and, you know, Muslims invented, cof uh, like, coffee, etc. And it's pretty innocent. But, you know, that does take you to a much 
a very real like a, a much darker side of a whole load of like stuff that is devoted to undermining Islam and this is why it's very important to know about who is narrating what you know where you are getting your history from because there are very deliberate misrepresentations like you know like bad faith interpretations um a lot of things that are usually baseless as well but when it's written with such certainty you know you just have to accept it and you know when it's published and it's on like you know it's being sold in the book and amazon there's no reason for you to really like question why it will be false be fair and i think Ilham mentioned in a previous podcast that she uh googled islam the top 10 books are all like very terrible misrepresentations and this isn't like a unique experience and uh, muslims are often like you know uh judged like on a different scale or made to be seen as like uniquely evil or intolerant or you know like even exotic to be fair and you know like a lot of context is purposely either omitted or like manipulated to support these conclusions so like then there is a need for muslims to enter the sphere and rectify these misconceptions and like there is a need for apologetics per se because considering how well um like oriental literature has cemented itself into our curriculums and our mainstream if you were to ask like the general person their view on islam or islamic history or, like even muslims themselves um often like the fair people will not even know and sometimes they'll often they won't have good opinions so we do need muslims to um you know like if we don't do anything these like narratives will prevail and dominate so um and you know so i was in a book club with sheikh Hasib and um he was he asked a very a good question and this was before we even started reading the book because before we approached this like the topic he wanted us to know how we were going to do it and his question was like what is your um epistemic isnad and we don't dwell on this but undoubtedly our background where we are from how we have received the knowledge that we have uh, will shape our worldview and our attitudes to these specific topics right uh that in itself will like um you know shape our scholarship and it will impact how historians learn and tell history as well so um like you look at hadith transmitters you look you know you look at their whole their whole lives their families their friends uh you know their habits their memory everything about them to determine the reliability and this would be relevant for anyone really knowledge in any like um topic but um especially islamic history then so now we have to see who is telling our history and from what lens right um and so what can muslims give to the study of islamic history that non-muslim historians aren't doing already right because undoubtedly they have done a lot of good work and you know they are putting out a lot of stuff for us to use and you know they what can we give to this fear that they haven't right and you know it's not unusual for people to like project their own moralities and like frameworks onto certain topics and it's not to say that muslim historians are going to give like a fairer or more neutral viewpoint either but you know as readers i think we can sometimes what we can pinpoint what what we can do is we can pinpoint the um if there is like a deficiency in the theological analysis part of it because we cannot separate our theology from our history and our history is very much shaped by our theological beliefs so if there is someone who isn't committed to that side of it or i wouldn't say ignorant because of course they know some parts of it but if they aren't looking at it from that lens they can come to conclusions that are like inaccurate or reductive or you know sometimes even problematic and small this is where we need people who are clued up in you know our religion our beliefs our diversity of our beliefs and you know who better to do that than muslims right but obviously this is not just muslims who identify as muslims this would, this means that the basis is that we need to have a good knowledge of the theology first to then delve into the rich history that then revolves around the theological beliefs yeah and i think that th this is like kind of a concern for a lot of muslims is that if we do um kind of delve into history and if we start you know digging and you know uncovering some of the things that so like some of the false narratives that um either you know will 
like maybe, you know, we'll discover something that's actually really enlightening um, and makes us excited and proud of Islamic history, or we'll discover that a lot of the things that we thought were super cool were actually not true. Um, and I, I think that this is one of the things that like, and this is the case with, you know, even how we look at Islamic scholarship, um, is that it's very easy to give, you know, Muslims this like romanticized ideal that just doesn't go much deeper than like, you know, for example, the issue of ikhtilaf, like I think we all grow up with this narrative of like, there's flexibility in the sharia and there's some difference of opinion. Um, and that's nice that like, you know, Islam gives us some difference of opinion, but then that's where it, like it just stops there. And then people grow up and they're like, why did this scholar have this like super out there opinion? Or like, how do I, you know, if I hear somebody that has this opinion, how do I understand that as like fitting into the sharia or how do I navigate this whole issue? But it just, you know, if somebody just like receives that narrative that like, oh, you know, there's like some ikhtilaf, but it's just on these like um, th things that like it's okay to disagree about. But then people discover like, you know, uh, things like sectarianism or they find out about like the mihna or whatever. They're like, how do I reconcile this with my understanding of Islam as um, as timeless and universal? Um, but it, what's really reassuring is that the more you delve into that history and the more you tr really try to look at like get an accurate representation of these things, actually the more impressive our history is and the more impressive our legal tradition is um so i don't think that yeah we should be um really concerned about these things and i don't think that you know like letting go of a romanticized ideal is not going to diminish our um our understanding of islam or muslims in the past and i think that's like it's very reassuring to know and that, that has been my experience the more i delved into things um it's not that i was you know disappointed but i was actually much more impressed with the depth and the complexity of the tradition um and for example like this you know i remember when um like a, a while back on like social media, it was a thing where a lot of people were talking about how um, Fatima al-Fihriya, who um, built the Qarawiyin Masjid, uh, was not actually the founder of the Qarawiyin University that was later established within the Masjid. Um, and how, you know, a lot of people were also then, um, like to what Amina was speaking about, using this to then push the narrative that, um, you know, Muslims try to like insert these like interesting women figures into our history, but they don't really exist and they don't actually have a role to play um, in Islamic education. And then th that was like a moment for us to then um, acknowledge that, yeah, we've we've mentioned that in the past that like she's the founder of the university. Let's go ahead and correct that like on our you know website language and everything. Um, but also I really tried to look for sources that talk about her and talk about the founding of the university and I couldn't find anything like it was I found very vague, limited resources. So even though people were making opposite claims that she had done like nothing, she basically like given money to build a masjid. I was like, okay, your, even your claims are not founded either. Um, but it's rather just, you know, trying to like uh, find an alternative to this other claim that, you know, is exaggerated. But then um, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that like, okay, it, it, what what seems like the most you know like accurate depiction of what happened is that she built this incredible masjid and masjid at the time were like centers of learning so a university doesn't then just like pop up out of the blue but you know they're like madaris are established and why people say also that it's like the first university in the world they what that means is it's the first degree issuing institution so people obviously had studied before that they studied in masjid they had systems of learning and systems of education but it wasn't what we now consider to be like a formal um system of issuing degrees in specific fields that's what developed um but yeah i, I think like if we had been you know just like scared that oh you know well what narrative do we have now then to like um claim that we that muslim women have any place in the tradition or whatever then we i don't i don't think that you know we need to have we need to be that scared and then like and to attach ourselves to these narratives that are just not an accurate representation of history or that re you know rest on like 
um, something that like a very popular story. And this is the things like you'll find so many articles um, peddling that narrative that, you know, it, not actually citing um, primary sources, but citing other sources who are saying the same thing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that we as Muslims should be scared of just like going deeper and like finding out the truth. Um, but yeah. So knowing that there is a way to study history, um, what then is the importance of doing so? I mean, like, you know, if we want to understand our conditions as Muslims, right, uh, why we are like this, how we got here and, you know, how to progress, we need to look for answers and, you know, what better place on the very rich resource that is our history, right? And literally Surah Baqarah tells us, you know, the Quran was sent down as a book for guidance. And, you know, it is a book of like stories of like um, past nations, of past trials. And, you know, we do reduce history to like battles and wars and conquests. But, like, you know, there's so much more to it. And, you know, just knowing our history and contextualizing it is so important, especially in an age of like misinformation. And when there's a lot of like, you know, like discomfort with like things that happened in the past. So, like, you know, when we do have knowledge of the past now, what do we do with it? And people often say we can like learn from the past, but you know what exactly does that mean, and how do we implement what we have learned? Because like honestly, like I find we don't we don't often learn from the past because we do tend to make like the same mistakes again and again, and you know history does tend to repeat itself. Um, for example, like so with the Holocaust, you know there was like never again, but you know we have seen various genocides that have followed, and literally like concentration camps exist right now, right? And a reoccurring point in our history for Muslims especially is like uh, Palestine. And especially recently with the whole like UAE fiasco and you know we are quite reactionary because Palestine does play such a central role in our history and our faith um but you know if we knew the um if we knew the history of Palestine specifically right um it's always been used as something that as like a bargaining tool like uh by Muslims for like against other Muslims and you know Saladin's nephew even sold it off to the Crusaders so it's not like you know betrayal is something you know we shouldn't get used to it but it's something that's happened in the past it happened at the time of the prophet as well subhanallah so clearly we aren't learning right because the same things keep happening again and again so you know like where exactly can we take like a pedagogical stance for this um like for me like i think like the repetition of history is not that merit because it does teach us that most things that have happened have some sort of like precedent and you know that can help that can be useful in cutting out a lot of the exaggeration and the drama that we are quite prone to as humans you know, with access to like, you know, um, social media and WhatsApp, because, you know, like the frenzy that, you know, followed the pandemic, right? That was, you know, that was insane because like there were so many different like uh, rumors and all these things coming out, like, you know, Zionist plot, Dave Judgment, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's more like if we knew like our history, like world history and Islamic history specifically, right? Um, we would know that this has happened before and we have actually, we actually have guidance of how to deal with it. And it just means that us as communities, we can react more intelligently because it will come to things that, you know, especially when it comes to things that, you know, affect our well-being, you know, um, our livelihoods and just our communities, right? And, you know, the Quran is a book of guidance. It's a book of, it provides the wakil that Allah has sent tests before and we have got through them. And Allah will never burden us more than we can handle. Um, so, like, we take knowledge, but we also have, like, peace of mind that Allah has not left us without, like, guidance. Definitely. I think that history provides us with that context and that nuance that when kind of you're just in this new cycle of constantly reacting to every single thing as though this is the first time it's ever happened, you just don't get in the same way. Um, I think history is also really important for us to study and for our communities to, to take an invested interest in because history is a tool of belonging. You know, knowing where we are, where we came from, the events that preceded us, all of that collective memory ultimately is the foundation of our identity. And Muslims are no exception to this. So 
if we want to build an Islamic identity that is obviously first and foremost rooted in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, learning our history and learning how our ancestors and communities before us also practiced that is, is fundamental to that project. And we've seen increasingly... Uh, and we've seen an increasing recognition of this connection. Um, I mean, I mean, I will be able to vouch for this also, but I know that uh, in the UK at least, when it comes around to the anniversaries of like BE Day and like other World War One, World War Two um, commemoration days, um, anniversaries, there's a big push by various kind of historical uh, institutes, some universities and some Muslim organisations to showcase the Muslims who fought in fought for, for the UK, fought for Britain during World War One and World War Two, and this is part of an attempt to show that Muslims in the UK is not a recent phenomena. Muslims being part of the British Empire and working for the British is not something new. It's actually something that's, you know, been going on for nearly almost 100 years now. And this is almost presented as a way for Muslims to kind of reconcile these two identities that, oh, look, we were on the same side. You fought for us during the war and, and you made your contribution for queen and country. I mean, we can obviously question to what extent, you know, this can be reconciled. And, you know, some people do look at Muslim participation in these wars in the past and evaluate whether that was really the best choice. There are obviously a lot of accounts as well of Muslims who refused to fight for the British, particularly in India. But regardless of that issue, that issue aside, I think it just shows that an awareness of history is incredibly important because ultimately it can be used for these purposes and to create bonds and create uh, allegiances where perhaps they shouldn't be. Uh, I think another kind of more current example, I guess, of the power of history informing identity is just the massive fandom that uh, the Turkish show Dirilish Ertuğrul has attracted to the point that literally now, you know, you see on social media, people, fans of the show are harassing the actors to be more Islamic in their personal lives because they see it's as so essential to preserving the, the message and the illusion of this show that actually Halime Sultan is a really practicing Muslimah in real life. And, you know, these actresses and actresses, I feel kind of sorry for them. They're literally having to block people now because they're just trolling all of their posts like, do you pray? Why don't you wear hijab? Which is like not a great way to get through to people in the first place. But I think it just shows that for many Muslims, it has really ignited a love for Islam and a sudden awareness about a historical period that is perhaps not as widely known about outside of Turkey or wasn't as widely known about outside of Turkey as it is now. I mean, obviously, there's lots of historical inaccuracies and, you know, yeah. it's, it's not to say that this is an accurate representation <laughs> of history. Pulls up, like, three centuries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, single, every single second, you know, he just happens to be wandering through. Um, but even... But but at the same time, I think that it just it depicts a a, a reality that was that, that that did exist, you know, a period of time. Some of those things are more accurate to the time period overall and the way in which Islam was practiced at that time. And that resonates with people. The idea that, you know, I think, again, perhaps filling this gap in history that we have between the time of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the, the, the immediate companions and then, you know, kind of the colonial period and post-colonial period. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, I think that it it goes to show like how history is meaningful for everybody and not just people who are in the social sciences or who are trying to, you know, 
um, I don't know, even like polemicists and like Muslim apologetics who are trying to defend Islam in the past or whatever. But I think because I think we can fall into just thinking that, okay, like this is a specialty that's important, but it's a specialty. Like it's for one group of people who are focused mm-hmm. on this. Um, but I think if we turn to the Quran, we see it like an imperative that applies universally to all Muslims to study and learn from history. Um, and this is like inherent in all of the stories that um, that Allah uh, tells us about the like prophets and peoples of the past um, and very obvious clear lessons that we can take from their uh, from their stories and it's also very interesting to see like how the same stories are um, like recounted again and again in different parts of the Quran and like different details are mentioned each time depending on like you know how it connects to the ayahs around it and like what other lessons to take from it um, but I just find this like such an interesting um, like such a you know it it's a, it really like wakes us up and kind of like lights a fire under us to realize that okay this is actually a command from Allah um and i if i like ignore this and if i just like turn a blind eye to this imperative in the Quran it, it's like Allah is telling me something and i'm refusing to listen to it um which not all of us can agree that we don't want to do um but i really love the way that like Muhammad Iqbal um writes about this in his book the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam which um it, i'm not like you know, citing it as somebody who like read it and understood all of it. It was, it's definitely like a dense text. Um, but I appreciate at least like um, here and there where he gives, you know, he, he's talking about these like really esoteric ideas sometimes, but then um, you can pull like really practical insights from what he's talking about. And one of those places in the book is when he talks about um, studying history, not just as, you know, um, you know, he says it like it ex- extends farther than mere indications of historical generalizations, like talking about, um, you know, studying history from the Quran. But rather, he he encourages us to kind of study history as a science um, and then have some sort of like practical action to then take from, you know, uh, like how do we then like see ourselves as members of history? Um, and it's really interesting that he mentions also um, that the Quran kind of gives us the um, he, he says it, it gives us like the fundamental principles of historical criticism, which is um, it's just the science of, again, like verifying historical facts. Um, and we know that the Quran, we know that like, you know, in our Sharia, it's haram to not, it's not just haram to lie. It's actually haram to say something that you you can't verify is true. So, so to just re- repeat something that you heard, even from somebody that like you think you trust, um, but without being able to verify it. Uh, without being able to say, like, I know that this is true, to then just, like, repeat it as something that is true, is actually impermissible. So the Qur'an gives us, you know, this foundation of historical criticism. Um, and, you know, like, it, again, is a reminder to us to be very critical of the information that, that we receive and that we then share. I really appreciate how Iqbal tells us to also then uh, see history as a continuum. Um, from the, like, very beginning of human history until the Day of Judgment. Um, and what that means is that, each you know segment of human history and each uh not only every people but also every region are interconnected and they're part of this one continuum it's not like people in separate places and separate times are living you know completely separate lives but rather um i think it's easier for us to understand this when we talk about like how people on the people in the past have had an effect on our lives and we do this to you know also kind of make excuses for ourselves and say that you know well the reason that we're experiencing this today is because this generation of muslims did xyz or they responded this way or colonialism did this to our lands um and when we see ourselves as like members of a historical continuum we also we don't just see ourselves as like subject to past historical events but we also see ourselves as responsible for the future and i feel like that's something that we really need to emphasize is that 
do we not think that the people who come after us are going to look at our actions and say, why did these generations do this and not do this? And look at what impact it has had on our lives. Um, so, to, it, you know, it kind of gives us like it's empowering in the sense that we, you know, we see ourselves as like actually having some ability to affect change um, because we see how people in the past who maybe had not super consciously been making those decisions and thinking that like, yeah, centuries down the line, this is the impact it's going to have, but that we can have those impacts and that, um, you know, like doing, um, enjoying good in our lifetime, it can have effects beyond what we immediately see in our lifetime. And that is reassuring. Um, and also humbling to know that, you know, like our goal is not to like achieve some end in our life, but maybe to just lay the bricks for people to then come after us and lay more bricks on before something, you know, really significant is built. Um, but yeah, it also gives us a heightened sense of responsibility for, um, you know, people who are not just uh responsible for ourselves but who will be held accountable for you know what what foundation we lay for people in the future definitely yeah definitely so um i think it's really important that sara mentioned that you know it's not just for specific people to know our history right um because you know um we've seen how so the influence of like for example you know we've seen how that's had such a widespread like unified like positive response and it's clearly shows that people do want to see this kind of representation of muslims you know these like um like strong moral codes and like chivalry and nobleness and you know these religious undertones i think that can be so important in creating like a uh, muslim culture especially when there are you know a lot of concerns with uh, representation so uh muslim culture has changed a lot since we were younger you know maybe we we just had, didn't have many options or some sort of like technological advancement but you know we were happy with these like you know these very generic like faded cartoons etc and um but a lot of stuff has just been wiped out and there's nothing to replace it and you know nothing can really hold us own against like the flashiness of marvel at this point so but i mean it's like you know what you know, like, what does Captain America have that, like, Salahuddin doesn't, right? And who can match, like, the absolute awesomeness of, like, Imam Shamil, right? So we clearly have the figures, we have the events, we have the storylines. All of this is here for us. Um, We just kind of need to make sure that, you know, like, keep it up to date. So, like, horses and swords aren't really, you know, doing it anymore. So we give, like, lightsabers and hoverboards or something. But, you know, why not use our own history that we know has, like... You know, it's like rooted in religion almost and, you know, make it exciting and pump it with like lessons on morality because we need to make sure Islam is relevant in all spheres of our life and not just like the massage, etc. And, you know, like the most mildest of like Western media ha- probably has some sort of like moral aspect, you know, and the hope is that with these like productions like Ertrol and etc, uh, the audience can some, you know, they can take in lessons of like khair and like have less exposure to indecency. And there is a lot of focus on academia per se. And I think now more than ever before, I think it's needed that we have we have we know about our history much more on like a local level like we need our communities to know about our history and like you know I only went to like my first like storytelling Islamic event this year and you know it was just so brilliant because it was just like a simple telling of these stories without all like the weird boring like you know you know like, all these like like weird theoretical readings etc and you know like we forget that our history is not just like a timeline of events and figures, right? It wasn't just like dates. Uh, it was a narrative of people and they had like emotions and situations that shaped their decisions. And, you know, like religion and all of that. And these like, you know, it's it does, it's a big disservice to have such like reductive, boring analysis sometimes. And, you know, I personally believe that um, like symbolism holds great merit, um, especially for Muslims who have grown up seeing islam um and just other muslims in like a very negative light right we've grown up mostly around muslims being like uh, engaging in war or you know be oppressed of some sort you know iraq war syrian war palestine subhanallah you know in kashmir it's all you know this is what we have grown up with 
And these little events of the past, you know, that tell us that Muslims were in a different position. And, you know, like with the whole, um, the Ayah Sophia conversion, like forget the like motives and the technicalities. It does mirror a time where we were in a stronger position. And I think that can do a lot for the, like the Muslim morale, especially in the type of like hopelessness. And I think it was Sayyid Qutb who wrote like a forward to this book where he wrote something along the lines of like, um, the most important need today is for like Muslims to acquire confidence in themselves and their past so they can face the future with hope and like courage and determination. And yes, you know, like that's so true because we do have a very defeatist mindset sometimes, you know, like Muslims are weak, you know, we're losing everything, you know, like what would we do? But firstly, of course, Allah has the power to change everything. And it's, you know, like um, maybe I'm just like very optimistic, but I think with the right people inspired by our past and little things that are happening now, inshallah, it can lay the groundwork for something monumental, inshallah. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. But just to consider the other side of the argument as well and recognise the limitations of history, I, I, you know, not taking away from anything, of course, that you guys have said. But I think that part of the historical literacy that Sara was talking about earlier is understanding what comes, what in history comes from Islam and what doesn't. And I think we see today, as you guys were kind of talking about a little earlier, with the revival of public knowledge about historical periods and controversies that people can very often cherry pick from history to justify sometimes like any and every deed. You you know, you occasionally you see these posts on social media of, oh look, Imam Suyuti did this, so rap music is okay. Or this leader had this many slaves, therefore slavery is okay. Or this sheikh from this madhab allowed this, I'm going to do it. And I think we need to draw a distinction uh, here. And remember that history, whilst incredibly important for all of the reasons you guys have mentioned, is not a source of sharia in itself. And people sometimes tend to overlook the aspect of usul al-fiqh as a discipline. You know, the principles of fiqh, the derivation of, 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 of legal rulings to history and to the classical scholars. And in talking about that period, they just kind of take what they used to do and assume that it must be automatically right or automatically applicable today but simply because a knowledgeable person or a powerful leader or even entire empires did something that does not mean that it's automatically right or the strongest islamic position or applicable for our time today and it's actually quite damaging when people do this uh they're again essentially acting on hearsay because rather than sort of studying Islamic texts themselves, speaking to people today who are knowledgeable in those fields and understanding how these things should manifest, people are just making judgments themselves. So Islam is not the summation of history and people forget that the deen is obviously a way of life that should transform the individual both materially and spiritually. So in that respect, history doesn't need to factor into that relationship it's not a source of sharia for that purpose even if it has a relevance to identity formation or understanding our role as human beings in this particular time period uh, i think it's very important that you touched upon cherry pick uh, literature because recently i saw some conversation about you know romi being muslim as well like, you know like romi is one of those people that has been kind of absolutely you know brutalized because you know he's been used as like an icon and a place of like romance and illicit relationships Allah. And even even thinking, is he Muslim? But, you know, we know that he was a God-fearing and pious man. He was a jurist. And we also know that half the translations of his work aren't correct. But, you know, how successfully has he been, you know, like manipulated and shaped into such, right? And what happens quite frequently is people tend to use these anomalous events or, like, very cherry-picked literature to produce uh, like generalised conclusions, um, like I should mention. And, you know, I see more and more often that people tend to impose the hallmarks of progression from, like, 
today's society onto past societies to then generate these conclusions like you know this society was xyz or this leader was so and so concepts and contexts that may not have been relevant for them back then um and then you know you add in like a healthy days of like orientalism and then it's just it's like it's a whole mess to be fair right and something i find that often happens like so you know like the whole sufi versus salafi dichotomy that's very uh that's more relevant for us now in like this contemporary discourse as opposed to like historically right uh but people do tend to use that point to make their arguments uh you know like so for example sufism is a very big victim to orientalist readings like this conflation of any sort of mysticism as sufi and it often separates the theological like islamic components of sufism um um you know for example we've seen that with rumi but you know they try to make this dichotomy that Sufis are the peaceful pacifist people. You know they try to pose, you know the late like the label of liberals today on this kind of category, and then pose it against the you know the, like the liberals, the tolerant ones. You know they let a lot of things you know slide, <laughs> and as opposed to like, the very violent Salafi jihadists, and you know like I just read this piece once that tried to try to use this like liberalness of the Sufis to justify homosexuality um, and make it seem like if, as if it was like a norm and widespread and it was used to kind of take a jab at our modern day like Salafi culture as being regressive and like I'm not sure these are even relevant in the context they used it but that was the point they were trying to make and you know people tend to latch onto very like niche events or like outliers and it's almost like a gotcha moment, you know, it's like, I like, like, I explain this Muslims, you know, like, and then they write like 30,000 odd essays making like very absolute conclusions regarding like whole communities and empires. And I guess it's like any other sphere where there's more focus and like fascination on Islam that goes against like tradition as opposed to like Muslims who are just like Muslim. The point is not to say these things aren't happening and, you know, disregard these claims as like they're false. Or, you know, just like taking the good and leaving the bad, because that's not history, you know, we need to look at everything. But subhanAllah, we know that there is no nation or empire or every time where people were not engaging in, uh, in acts that went against Islam, right? And I guess we should critique the romanticization of like Islamic empires, because we do have like a rather sanitized image of like they can do no wrong or the evils that do exist, exist due to modernity. And like hagiographic literature can sometimes allow for us as Muslims to almost become like cultish in our defense of those in the past. Because, you know, I remember reading like a critique of Salahuddin and, you know, it was to me, I was like, no, but this is definitely Islamophobic because, you know, th it was just so harsh. But subhanAllah, you know, we know as Muslims that humans are not infallible and no one is free from sin. And um, so we should not put these, okay, so we should of course respect scholars, but you know, if a scholar has a wrong opinion or a differing opinion, that, you know, that is possible because humans are, you know, are very different. And, you know, our defence should be of our faith and, you know, those who are misframed as opposed to just like a general uh, defence of scholars. Uh, but I do think like using isolated events and making them appear, appear as if they were the norm within our culture is, is pretty disingenuous. Yeah, there's a way for us to learn from history and to gain from it and to, you know, have it benefit us in our daily lives as Muslims without then conflating it with, you know, um, like an evidence when it, it in fiqh, which is, you know, like th this is something that we do see where people who don't have an understanding of usul al-fiqh and like, um, you know, like how the sharia develops and how the sharia is interpreted and then like fiqh develops um, will then, you know, just think that like, they have this like vague idea of oh it's just scholars like kind of using whatever knowledge they have and their own analytical skills to come to conclusions so i can do the same thing when i just like you know and i can take people's behavior in the past as you know like an asl but that's just not how that process is conducted and you know this is why it's you know it's not again like i don't feel worried about 
Muslims reading into Islamic history and then like seeing something that might be um, like shocking or just surprising or disappointing because we always have um, like our Sharia to go back to and measure things against. And we really have to be consistent in that sense, because even when it comes to like analyzing things today, um, for example, like music, for some reason, it's like always uh, like instead of just like, you know, looking at whether or not something is like um, Sharia compliant, there's like a, you know, a really common attitude among some Muslims where if the music is in Arabic, then it's like, then that's fine. And if it's in another language, or even if it just like follows a certain style like hip hop, then it like that they automatically associate that more with like degeneracy. Whereas if you just use the Sharia as a measure, then the content of the, again, like putting aside the issue of instruments, because there is like some degree of uh, difference on that, but just the content of the music in terms of like the, you know, like the lyrics or whatever, that we can measure that very clearly, like from song to song, from artist to artist against the Sharia without, um, you know, like wholesale dismissing one group of people in a way that is like pretty racialized also um, as like, like associating them with like haram and with degeneracy. And then also like just kind of like accepting whatever comes from another part of the world, from another language. Um, and, you know, assuming that like, yeah, it, it, again, we're just using, if we're consistent in our application of um our sharia and of like the quran and sunnah as our measure then like it makes it easier for us to just direct our nasiha in a way that is um morally consistent um but i want to kind of transition now to then asking like the question of questions which is um how do we approach the study of um you know muslim women in islamic history uh and just like their treatment and their status and um you know a lot of the different narratives that we do here um but how, do, how are we supposed to approach that as women because it you know uh, obviously, it is a fraught issue, um, and it has implications for people's relationship with Islam. Um, but yeah, I think that this is a big one, as you've said, and it's at the root of many doubts that young Muslim women have when they start to learn more about Islam. Uh, and I think that it's consequently important to consider where this issue actually originated. Uh, controversies surrounding Muslim women have persisted over the past couple of hundred years after Orientalist writings about Muslim women in the colonial period had portrayed a very sexualized image as a contrast to the more kind of puritanical Christian values of Europe. Uh, and I think first and foremost, Muslims should acknowledge that this depiction exists and that it has been perpetuated as well for underlying ideological reasons. Again, there is a tendency for people to cherry pick from history and often now you see Muslims pointing to problematic treatment of women and sometimes argue that Muslim women were exactly as Orientalists portrayed them and that anyone who denies this is just romanticising history. But I think it's also really important to look at the critical literature on this period. I mean, obviously a huge starting point um, is, is Edward Said's infamous Orientalism. Uh, but also other more kind of almost feminist academics as well. You see that what we are reading, they, they, they really emphasise, is not just the objective portrayals of Muslim societies by European travellers, but they, as writers, were people who imposed their own subjectivities, their own opinions and, and worldviews onto the societies that they were speaking about. And so they ended up conforming to dominant narratives, which were also in, in line with the dominant geopolitical strategies at the time, which were essentially trying to elevate the position of, of colonisers. And this is really reflected in the disparities that are between some of the reports. So if you look at European women who were traveling to the Middle East in the 18th and 19th centuries, they often didn't look at the veil uh, and you know the hijab overall as something that was sexualizing, but instead argued that Ottoman and Arab women were able to enjoy more freedom of movement 
because their their status in society was guaranteed by the fact that they were wearing hijab. A good example of this kind of nuance that is often lacking is actually in a book by Rena Lewis called Rethinking Orientalism, Women, Travel and the Ottoman Harem. And it actually takes these women travellers who mixed with Ottoman women and even Ottoman women's writings themselves and contrasts it with Orientalist depictions. So you have Ottoman women from various backgrounds sharing their writings on how they perceived the inequalities in their societies, their own takes on, on classism, on slavery, the encroaching westernization in the late Ottoman period, and even the feminist struggle in Europe. And it's really fascinating to read how these women, looking, these Ottoman women, looking at the struggle of the suffragettes in Britain, for example, actually expressed feeling better off at living in the Ottoman Empire. They identified struggles of their own, of course. I'm not trying to say that, you know, they had no problems and their life was perfect, but they didn't lack agency and they weren't voiceless. And most crucially, it shows us that there's one side to this story. So I find it odd that when there is this nuance and when there are post-colonial historians and academics who are trying to look at history from different perspectives, we still have certain Muslims clinging to and universalizing certain depictions of women under Islam, when we should actually be at the forefront of those interrogating them. History is is not journalism, or rather the image that I think people have of journalism. It's it's not objective, and we should be interested in exploring it, not just judging it. And again, obviously, disclaimer, this is not to say that all of the accounts of problematic treatment of Muslim women are false. But can we just also keep in mind that we are talking about 1200 years of history that we term Islamic history over four continents? I mean, of course, there was going to have been some abhorrent treatment of some people over this huge amount of time in this huge space and yes many things were probably justified using islam because it was the dominant value code the same way that a lot of injustices happen in the world that we are in today and it's justified by the legal code but that doesn't mean that the dominant situation of muslim women has always been negative nor does it mean that islam sanctions that treatment of women as the ideal way in which society should be run So either way, the situation of Muslim women in our history is not something that we should be ashamed or depressed over, uh, but not all of it may be something that we need to celebrate and uphold as, you know, the in, in a very romantic way as this was a perfect ideal that we have moved away from. Yeah, I would just add that this is also why it's important to not only study Islamic history, but to study the history of the world and again, to see all parts of world history as part of this continuum and something that we're connected to because when you study other parts of the world and you see um not to you know kind of like engage in this like gotcha game where oh you thought like the treatment of muslim women is bad look at women in europe you're worse so islam is not that bad like that we're not trying to like stoop to that level of analysis but it at least gives you an idea of okay like this these attitudes and these behaviors were not unique to islam or a result of islam um but you see you know like again like th- this is something that is inherent to the human being which is human beings with power oppress the vulnerable um and this is a, like a um one of the trials that we face as human beings that we need to fight against um but it like not everybody manages to win that battle and to pass the trial people will still engage in oppression of the vulnerable everywhere and they do um and it, it we again like we have to kind of deconstruct those narratives of like Um, women in other parts of the world being comparatively um, liberated and it's not really difficult to access those narratives um, even though I think people try to like use the lack of um, the the comparative you know lack of writing from Muslim women from certain periods is like um, like evidence again like uh, evidence for their oppression or whatever but it, you can look at the writings of women like in Europe 
at different times in like really recent times and just see um you like like their status and like the way that they're treated in society in ways that are like clearly contradictory to the sharia um not that they were using it as a standard but just to like give you an idea of you know like how human beings throughout history have just acted and conducted themselves like you can read Jane Eyre and like I'm reading like Gone with the Wind right now and I'm just like oh my god this like it sucks to be a woman like in the U.S. at like the time of the Civil War and like just the some of the customs are like really horrifying and you know it's not something that you would associate with like American culture or European culture or Christian culture that um you know or, or with their history and that again shows you the power of you know the the, the way that people who um, like have then like hard power that have structural power can then influence culture and then um, again can uh, can use their soft power to construct certain narratives about their history and about their culture um, and yeah it, it a lot of times it's you know um, it's not that we are just struggling to um, reconcile facts but it's that we don't have the facts and that we don't have the full story of um, you know how people were just like how cultures were in different parts of the world uh, with regards to like women i find some people are very skeptical of you know celebrating muslim women of the past you know either because we are over exaggerating their role in islamic history or you know just what they did was not worth celebration and there is this weird notion that we can only celebrate women who like uh broke boundaries or you know went against stereotypes like and this you know like she fought in a war or this figure like led a country but then, you know, like, why is domestic work not worth celebrating, right? And, you know, they may not have, you know, fought in the armies, but they raised all the men, like, fighting in it. And, you know, alhamdulillah for that. And when you really think upon how much of an impact these women had on, you know, the big events of our history, it's kind of insane. Because I know, um, I was going for the seerah in Ramadan, and, you know, we celebrate the very obvious bravery and courage, like the men and the women fighting in the battlefields. Because they're very worthy of that, of course. But, you know, some something very different stuck out to me this time, where... Uh, you know, like, I was thinking about the mothers who told their sons to go fight, like, Fisibilillah, right? Um, and, you know, like, that is such a massive sacrifice, right? They are sending what is most beloved to them, um, knowing they may not even return. And, you know, why can why is that not celebrated as an act of courage and strength? And, you know, we don't need to match what men do in attaining these labels. You know, subhanAllah, and I'm sure in the way of Allah, it will weigh, like, very heavy on their scales. But, you know, we can be celebrated for who we inherently are. And I think... With regards to these like controversial topics or topics that are quite sens- um, sensitive or you know may cause discomfort, the best advice I was given, um, you know, recently someone just sent to me like it's very important to have like a basic understanding of like our fiqh and like aqidah because it's very easy to get caught up in the in- uh, intricacies because you know you may get emotional and pass something off, exaggerate it so it's like the worst thing in the world, or we may even undermine truly horrific, horrific things that did contravene Islam. And then it's very easy to fall into a crisis of faith yourself or, you know, for other people. And we just we need to remember that, you know, morality is ever-changing. Societies and norms are dynamic. And, you know, we do not need to feel comfortable with events of the past. But the most important thing is that not to make, like, um, absolute statements, you know, because we know what is permissible and what is forbidden. And that is our framework. And Muslims do lose sight of this because, you know... Maybe it's on social media, but often you do see people undermining wrong because, you know, we get so caught up in, like, the glory days and, like, the lust for, like, power and strength. Or, that like, the opposite where, on the flip side, people use, like, very specific language. Uh, you know, language is very emotive and evokes, like, vivid imagery in today's society and context and on, like, past um, events and narratives where, you know, it may not be very fitting to frame it in such a way, but it does paint it as a, in a certain way. And it's just very important to remember to firstly be sincere and that our framework in the end of the day is Islam. 
Yeah, and that's why, again, going back to your earlier point about like why it's important to have a, a foundation in Islam before trying to analyze, you know, the like the moral stances of a lot of these historical events and like um, historical figures, because again, like somebody can have, um, you know, this like very like basic understanding of um, Islam and like look at um, the Sahaba fighting in these battles and, you know, generations after the Sahaba and these armies being composed of like primarily, if not only men and see, well, if jihad fi sabilillah is, you know, elevated as such um, as the highest deed repeatedly in so many ahadith um, in the Quran and the women are like effectively not even like barred from that because we know that they're not barred from that, but they're not as um, it's not like it's not an obligation for them to begin with, but also they're just they don't end up being um, yeah represented in those armies as much. Then okay, have you not barred women then from like the highest deed? But then like again, just like a little bit more knowledge about this issue would show that like okay, um, like the, there is a form of jihad for women, um, and that is the Hajj itself. And there are also so many other um, you know examples of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioning deeds that are actually um, when done in a certain way are even more rewardable than like physical jihad fi sabilillah. So. Um, yeah, again, like when we use that as our measure and when we just like dig a little deeper, then we we don't have to like uh, accept anything that is, you know, that diminishes the status of women. We don't have to reconcile things um, that are difficult, difficult to reconcile. Um, but Allah really rewards us for um, for seeking knowledge and for digging deeper. Yeah, yeah, I really I totally agree. Um, but Amina, actually, I have a question for you. Obviously, mashallah, I consider you very much a history buff. And if I ever need perspective on something or recommendations, I feel like you're the person I think about going to. Um, so are there any particular events in history or time periods that you're specializing in? Uh, any kind of favorite figures or, you know, events that happened? You, you tell us. You're the expert here. It's so interesting that, you know, I can't believe you said that because you already said that, you know, Muslims only know about Salahuddin. But for me, Salahuddin is the be and all. And <laughs> my main area of interest is like the Ayyubism and looks, the Crusades, and just in general, like um, 12th century Syrian Egypt. But, you know, we all know Salahuddin, but no one really knows that Ayyubis, okay? And that's not okay because, you know, I could talk to you about the battles and, you know, but that's the one part that people do know. Uh, for me, it's the idea that all of these significant figures and events, like, they will not be around if it were not for, like, little people. And you know that, like, the second-in-command lieutenants, the scribes, the servants, the traitors, all of these guys played a role um, that allowed for the rise of, like, Salahuddin and then, in turn, one of his biggest achievements of um, liberating Jerusalem. So, yeah. uh, like, we have, like, Nuruddin Zengi. And, you know, Salahuddin owes yeah. much... Yeah, we do. <laughs> and, you know, he owes much of his power to... Um, Salahuddin owes much of his power to him because he literally, like, paved the way and he was almost like a mentor to him. And he was a very righteous and moral man, but, you know, his father was Imaduddin and he was a drunkard and a brute. But, you know, like, a very competent one too. But, I mean, you know, we do tend to gloss over the less righteous figures of our history. But nonetheless, like, they did play a role in our history. And, you know, it's also, it's also hopeful to know that... You know, sometimes we get quite, you know, like, you know, we're living in an age where there's, there's a lot of bad people. But it's good to know that sometimes, you know, khair can come from, like, anywhere and, you know, even sometimes even born out of evil. Uh, and also, um, like, you know, like, how many of Salahuddin's uh, decisions, uh, you know, they were impacted by his, like, uh, lieutenant and administrator, Abdul Rahim ibn Ali. And this, you know, it's actually said that the lands are not conquered by the armies of Salahuddin, but by the Penwal father. And, you know, people make it out of Salahuddin just like rode onto the like battlefields. You know, he fought, he won, and he came back. But, you know, there were so many people involved in telling him what to do and how to go about things. And these key figures who we have no idea, like, if it weren't for them, it would be a completely different story. 
Um, but, you know, actually my favourite part is how like strongly theology is laced within this part of history. Because um, undoubtedly like the ulema had a very big role in um, Ayyubid society. And, you know, like it wasn't just them like issuing like fetwas, etc. They were very much involved in like, you know, like uh, telling um, Sahaldin about the laws um you know documenting his life but also fighting within the battles with him so you know we have people like um ibn shaddad and ibn qudama who uh imaduddin isfahani and you know like they had a very prominent role and we know about salahuddin how you know how well rooted a lot of the things a lot of his decisions were in islam and that's because he had such a close connection with these um with these ulema, but you know, that's not to say that, you know, Ayyubids were like a very like righteous society either, because they had a lot of treachery and problems too, but you know, that's exciting, and that, you know, that makes it how it, you know, what we like about it. And also a testament to like the very strong religious characters is also, um, you know, the institutions they set up um, like in the way of Islam, like all the Ayyubid um, princes and the princesses, they set up like, um, you know, schools for like various, like, like Shafi schools, Hanafi schools, and these later shaped the societies that came afterwards and we know about the Mamluks who followed afterwards and you know we know that you know the giant that is like Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah um but also you know like we can't forget the enemies either because you know they played a massive role as well so we have like the crusaders and like the Nizari Ismailis who try to like assassinate Salahuddin and they bring a lot of excitement as well but you know like the success of Salahuddin is uh for me it's more inspiring when you know the details of his situation you know and I always say like the details are what matter but it is because you know, like, it's very, okay, military leaders taking land, that's a very normal thing, like, they're supposed to do that, but, you know, he was not a very rich person, you know, he did not have everything planned out, a lot of his life was, you know, you know, making choices as he went along with no long-term plan, so, like, on paper, it doesn't look great, but, you know, it's kind of um, he was definitely an adventurer, and we know that he had very moral, like, views, and there was a framework of Islam, and, subhanAllah, you know, that's why, and he did so much of so little, and that's what makes him, like, a very good leader, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, I do have to kind of, like, um, justify what I can get out of this. Because, you know, I'm no military leader. There's nothing I'm really learning in that aspect, right? So how do I justify myself <laughs> learning this? And I do like to look at history from the future in the sense that, you know, what will the textbooks say about us 21st century Muslims? Because, you know, what have we achieved and how have we dealt with our fitna? Because, so for that reason, I do like to look at these past societies that have Islam as their foundations, like their structures and their systems and what allowed them to function to see if we can somehow replicate these things and find like answers for our own problems uh, because you know we have smaller problems to deal with as well as opposed to like you know the liberation of Jerusalem and you know I was doing a project for the Bosnian genocide earlier this year and I was you know I studied Bosnia Bosnia under Ottoman rule as well there was this very cool thing where they and they were able to establish stable communities but they were dealing with issues of like um, employment and you know discipline and these are things that are very much relevant in our society today, right? And there was one lovely piece of, like, the Ottomans, and, you know, they were showing how, like, the advent of coffee shops in Jerusalem was, like, an absolute nightmare for them, because, you know, it kind of brought in all these other problems of, like, you know, uh, it, like, created an uh, environment where people, like, lazing around, neglecting the salah, like, wasting the day away. And, you know, that's, like, we can draw parallels right now, but, you know, I just might, I made, like, a direct connection with, like, shisha lounges, like, you know, I'm really looking there for answers because, you know, yeah. we don't have to look at history as some, like, glorious thing where, you know, that's all battles and wars. There's a lot of little things that we can, in short, like, use, and, you know, because that's more, you know, realistic for people like us, right? And, um, because we're not all going to be the Salahuddin's, we don't have all these, all of this, you know, 
all this cool stuff like horses and swords etc like some of us will be the one you know be the people who allow Islam to be born uh so we will not liberate jerusalem but we will liberate our localities inshallah and you know so if we do our part correctly it can lead the path for someone else to fulfill that vision as well but you know we forget that you know we're all waiting for some big savior to come but not realizing in the moment now we are the people who are creating these societies and conditions for these saviors to be born and as I said, there's so many different figures involved in allowing for the rise of Salahuddin. And are we creating these figures firstly to, you know, allow for that to eventually happen? And I think like for us as, you know, limited power, maybe that's what we should be focusing on, inshallah. Because, you know, we, our vision of like a hero is very much like a horse riding, sword building warrior. But I think that we have a lot of other courageous figures as well, you know, that we need to make sure we remember as heroes because they have... You know, they've done a lot for Islam as well. I mean, just little people like, you know, like um, uh, Muhammad Rafiq who tackled the Norway mosque shooter or, you know, Razan, the Palestinian paramedic. But these are all people that have done something, um, you know, either it was brave or, you know, just something in the way of Islam that we should remember, inshallah. And I do hope the Garween project can make its mark in history as well in whatever capacity we as like Muslim women can, inshallah. You know, build a society closer to creating these heroes that we do yearn for, inshallah. Um, I have a quote that I feel is very apt for this moment and um, you guys are going to laugh at me, laugh a knowing laugh because it's a Lord of the Rings quote. Um, <laughs> Sada's already laughing. Um, I'm not going to say who said it, but the quote is that even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And I think that that is very true <laughs> for us, inshallah. <laughs> May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to, you know, make a lasting contribution, peace of Allah. I mean, may Allah allow us to also contribute to the liberation of Palestine. Um, but also, yeah. I, Had to get that in, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to like completely veer to a side point, but uh, I, I just like this is something that I find so interesting, which is that there's um, different ways to analyze um, historical events from like a, a, a poli side perspective, which is that. Um, you know, there's like, I think the one that we most commonly use now, which is like a, a structural lens, um, and like a structural explanation for change and for power, which is that we see like, what are the yeah structural conditions that people are placed in that then like dictate what they do and what they're able to do. But then there's also like strategic choice theory, which says that actually human beings are able to make um, certain decisions that then have like a huge impact but also like that depends also on their like structural position but it's really you know like you see throughout history like again these um examples of people that like all of the structural conditions seem to be going against them but they very much just not only believe that they could do something but they believe that they had to do something and so they did and they went forward and they um affected change and like like nobody thinks that you know um like some random guy who has like a like a really did just like a, a dumb talk show is then going to become like the president of the United States and then um, be able to actually, you know, ha like have an influence on like the life and death of people in the Muslim world and throughout the world. But he, he had the confidence to do it. He has a lot of confidence and <laughs> comparatively <laughs> Muslims who, you know, if we were able to like collectively, um, yeah, just to, to organize ourselves as a collective and then to have like an ounce of confidence about the fact that, you know, um, if we do something sincerely that Allah will give us tawfiq, like things would change drastically. I really do believe that a lot of this stuff, it has to do with just like a lack of confidence and the wrong mindset with a lot of Muslims, like not thinking that they can do anything. It's not even about their ability. And like my biggest evidence for this is just seeing like the dumbest people imaginable in positions of power, people who have no skills with like immense, even like huge companies and like tons of money 
and they're not like particularly interesting or skilled but it just is it so happens that you know they um they, they really believed in themselves and they made everybody around them think that like that they have something going for them because they believed in themselves so strongly so i think yeah it, it's just like another way to like empower the individual um but again to like veer back to what you were talking about amina um i actually want to ask whether you guys think that there's um a sort of arabization of islamic history um because even when you talk about a figure like salah al-din um and a lot of these like famous figures in islamic history a lot of our scholars people automatically just assume that they were arab um they were often you know speaking and writing in arabic but that wasn't you know they weren't ethnically arab and um you know there's also again like beyond the middle east and beyond north africa beyond even al-andalus there's so much more to islamic history so like how do we um do you, do you think that we like give those places their credit and that we like how do we approach then um you know this arabization of islamic history i think there is to an extent an arabization of islamic history but i feel like alhamdulillah that is changing i mean what you were saying uh, amina about working on a project to do with the bosnian genocide you know mashallah now every year we hear about it and there's been a greater awareness of islam in the balkans things like ertuğrul there's obviously an awareness of the islamic history of turkey which i mean can still kind of be part of considered part of the the middle east kind of region obviously as the homeland of islam to an extent but obviously there's so much within ottoman culture and and, and turkish culture that is unique in a sense um uh, different to the way islam manifested in neighboring arab arab regions uh but i think that alhamdulillah as well we're seeing growing awareness in our community through events and books and lectures about the history of islam in sub-saharan africa for example also in central asia um uzbekistan kazakhstan places where obviously someone as significant in islamic history as imam bukhari originated from uh, samarkand and the silk road a great awareness of that and even in east asia obviously malaysia and indonesia mashallah as muslim countries that have actually the largest muslim population indonesia has the largest muslim population um i think you know mashallah there's a there's a growing awareness about the history of islam there and how islam reached those regions Uh, and I mean, personally, the latter is something that I've been particularly interested in, looking about the history of Islam in China and even minority, very small minority communities in, in Japan and Korea, the Philippines, places like that. Seeing how Madahib developed and learning when books were translated into these languages is, is really just incredible and makes you appreciate the diversity of Islam and the fact that, again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed this in a way that human beings from all around the world can take advantage from it. Uh, one area that I feel like I would like to improve upon a little bit more and find is less publicly well-known is the history of Islamic scholarship in India. I think when we talk about the classical and even later periods of Islamic scholarship, we really neglect to look at the vibrant scene of learning in places like Delhi and Lucknow and, Ali- and Aligarh right up until the British Raj, as well as the revivalist scene thereafter. I mean, obviously, in learning institutions that are dedicated to kind of the study of Islam in South Asia, um, institutions of, you know, Deoband and Darul Uloom and places like that, I think it's spoken about there, but not as much in kind of general public knowledge. I think the moral leader that I've probably seen spoken about most, and that is in popular culture and usually by non-Muslims, is Akbar, who's obviously used to show kind of tolerance and interfaith. Whereas actually he didn't do any of that. He just made a new religion, uh, which in my mind doesn't constitute interfaith if you just make a new religion, which anyone can join. But there's such a rich history of the Mughals in the subcontinent and amazing scholars like Shah Waliullah as well. And especially with what we're seeing in India right now, as obviously in East Turkestan as well, 
the eradication of Muslim identity starts by contesting Islamic history. And even monuments like the Taj Mahal are, you know, now in popular um, discourse in India, they try and contest whether actually it was made by Muslim. Is it actually made on the site of a, of a, of a, Hindu, um, of a Hindu temple? Is it, a, is it a Hindu structure to begin with? And Muslims have just claimed ownership of it. Uh, and this is, again, something that is not new. We saw this with the, the, the famous Babri Masjid as well, which was demolished then. So I think it's really important, inshallah, that our knowledge of this can try and keep our uh, awareness of the cultural impact of these Muslim societies on the practice of Islam today. So the reason why people talk about Akbar or not like um, Aurangzeb, who was known as the more pious of the Mughal kings, and that does co- uh, directly correlate with how many people dislike him, because there's been a very active approach by like the BJP party to remove, um, you know, like um, the like, significance of the Muslim um, past, and you know they've even tried to rename roads that were commemorating him. Um, so um, with regards to the Arabization, I think within I think we live in a bit of a bubble on social media because we do know we do know and commemorate a lot of the other empires but for example in real life people when you tell them that you know like the, you know the idea of a white muslim is quite foreign to a lot of people right and you know we know about um like Andalus and how you know this era produced some of the most significant scholars and you know poets leaders philosophers and thinkers of the medieval age but they aren't really recognized outside in like the mainstream like that so you have people like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Rushd, Dark, Ibn Ziyad, Sahrawi and you know like the heavyweight that is Ibn Hazm and these are mentioned a lot within our little Muslim Twitter sphere but in the real world you don't hear as much and you know this was a time that was it was like like it was a hub for like social and cultural exchange like the arts and the sciences and architecture uh medicine Islam all this was flourishing and, you know, I just very slightly remember Zahrawi's name being mentioned in one of my uni lectures. And, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, it sounds like Muslims. Well, you know, tell me more. But, you know, we don't really uh, recognise this in the real world as much. So if I told you about a wealthy, white, conservative, middle-class man, you'd like, you know, you'd see like Boris Johnson or something. But you you would, you know, like Abdullah Quilliam, it was exactly that. And he was the man who brought Islam to Liverpool. And it's a shame that a lot of people in Britain don't know who he was. And we as Muslims have not kept his legacy alive either. Uh, there's loads of things like you know the Socrates Caliphate, the Mughals, the Delhi Sultanate, the Chechens, and so much diversity. But all of these people have done something for Islam, for the people in these lands, um, like in the way of Islam. And you know it's it's a shame that we don't kind of follow this history because there is an active attempt that people don't want to, to people to know what the Muslims have done for the world, right? And with the Bosnian genocide again, there was a cultural genocide where they had very deliberate bombings of their libraries and their museums to wipe out their Islamic Ottoman past. But, you know, Alhamdulillah, like, faith is in the heart, so, you know, Alhamdulillah. But we are ambassadors of Islam and spreading its um, message is our responsibility. You know, meaning we need to know about the norms and the cultures of other people. Um, you know, their past, their history, because, you know, the Islam is for everyone. So we need to make sure we know how to make the message palatable for them so they, you know, so they can resonate and engage with it. Yeah, I'm really glad that you touched upon this because I'm even thinking about, like, how we've had this discussion and how... Um, in order for people to, in, or in order for us, especially I think as Muslims outside of the Muslim world, to see ourselves as part of Islamic history and to just see ourselves having any place in like our local histories, that we have to study um, it, it, like Islam in the places that we live now in its history. And when we do that, we can really see like how those events and like how also the the lack of knowledge about Muslims in you know the past couple of centuries um, in like these in the West like not knowing about those things has really um, hindered the community today in a lot of ways. I look at, for example, a lot of Muslims who, you know, like in my local community who see Islam as 
um, still kind of like this, uh, a brand new or a foreign thing um, in the United States. Whereas like, if you look into, you know, like the existence of um, not just like the nation of Islam itself, but then also like what, um, like what follows from it and even what exists before that, um, like you see uh, like an indigenous Islam that, um, you know, like the, the cultural remnants of it are like, are, are very present. Um, like, and I, this, I was watching, um, like I recently found, and also like, this is, you know, I hope that this provides like a nice alternative to people who have been unsubscribing from Netflix lately, <laughs> but there's, um, like, I think people have, you know, it's been recently getting some attention, which is this website called Alchemia, which is, um, like a Netflix, but of, uh, like films made by Muslims and about Islam. Um, and I was like watching some of the things on it yesterday. There's actually some really nice documentaries. Um, but for example, there's this like short film on there called The Sunni Beard. And it's talking about how like just like like large beards are very popular in Philly. Um, Philly being a place that like is known for having like a, you know, like a pretty significant like uh, like black set of Muslim community. But those beards being something that like is just popular throughout Philadelphia, like amongst both like Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, and how like a lot of time, you know, there's a lot of people in this video who are not Muslim who are saying like, yeah, a lot of people say like, Assalamualaikum to me when I'm walking on the street. And I just, you know, like I nod and acknowledge them. But yeah, I'm not Muslim, even though like, you know, I love the Philly beard and all this stuff. And like you see like the, these, you know, these instances of like where Islam is very much present and where um, it, it gives me also confidence to know that um, and some hope to know that Islam can take root um, in places where it can feel so foreign and where it can feel like, you know, um, like it's under attack a lot of the time. Um, and speaking of like, you know, British Muslim history, I there was another documentary on Alchemia um, called Blessed Are the Strangers. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or watched it, but it's talking about like um, this community of Muslims that like, there's like the... So with the like wave of the hippie movement in like the 1960s um, and like into the 70s, there's a lot of people who are um, seeking spirituality and they're like really turning to like Eastern religion and Eastern spirituality in order to find meaning in like a really, you know, increasingly like materialistic West. Um, and with that, like some people then find um, Sufism and then they, you know, with that, they like slowly transition more and more into um, like getting in touch with like um, scholars in the Muslim world and then um, those scholars then telling them like okay you need to like go and call people to Islam in England and you see like this community develop in like Norwich um, and then parallel to that a Muslim community develop in like Brixton and then um, just talking about like yeah like these massages and like a lot of the like the challenges they went through and like where they are today um, and I feel like I don't know it, the, like the vibe I get from the documentary is that a lot of UK Muslims would be like, oh, it's like those Sufis over there. But it's at least like it's a very like interesting way of seeing like how Islam is able to like take root in these places and like um, in a way that's not, you know, like foreign and in a way that is, um, yeah, just like native to those areas. But um, yeah, so alhamdulillah, yeah. That's really interesting, actually, inshallah. I think I've heard about something similar, but I'm definitely going to check it out. And I think that it's this is the thing we need to take control of the narrative uh in creating indigenous islam in these places i mean this is a whole other topic now that inshallah we'll do another day but given that we've been talking so much about the importance of history uh we need to make sure that we know our history in order to use it for the correct ends inshallah and yeah really make the most of these kinds of initiatives and make sure that it's guiding all of us as a as an ummah overall to a good place yeah inshallah also, yeah, alhamdulillah. And I, I think I hope that the yeah, that like what people can take from this episode is um like an imperative to then go and act and 
um, to feel some hope and also to like, yeah, see ourselves as actors um, in history, not just, you know, people who have to study what happened, um, but to, you know, then think about, okay, what are we going to do? Um, I've also just been informed that I mispronounced Norwich. I don't know how to, I still am not sure how to pronounce it, but you know what? It's okay. This is a learning process for me as well. It's fine. <laughs> Our names are like, yes, yeah. ridiculously and hard. What's funny is that have... Aisha also frequently complains about how French pronunciation doesn't make any sense. But then y'all include all these letters that you just don't say. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think English is, is I, I do feel sorry for kind of people learning English as a second language because it does not make sense. Like at the very least, a lot of other like Latin languages there's the, the grammar is intense and there's a lot of kind of structure to them and it's yeah. very mathematical english is just awful yeah so yeah we can all appreciate that yeah big apologies for speaking english <laughs> but um yeah on that note though um we will go ahead and wrap up this episode here but also let everybody know to um look out for an upcoming book list so you guys have seen um, or are the readers of the qadawin projects i have seen um past book lists some of which were general recommendations but we also had like a couple of specific editions we had one um on like islam and systemic anti-blackness and then we also had like a university reading list which was like um specific recommendations for people who are yeah starting university um which it, it's fall semester now like fall semester just started so people should go check that out um, but we will also be, inshallah, publishing soon um, kind of like a, a history reading list, um, not something that, you know, is like a comprehensive overview of history, but um, maybe an introduction for people who are thinking like, yeah, I would like to get into this. I I see the Quranic imperative to like now study history, but I'm not really sure where to start. So hopefully that will help us, you know, um, yeah, just kind of like dip our toes in and um, continue on this path, ta'ala. Um, but yeah, make sure to keep in touch with us on social media. Um, and let us know your guys' thoughts and your feedback and your suggestions for um, any upcoming content that you would like to see from the Qadawin project. Um, and with that, we'll close and see you all soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.